This program is brought to you by Emory University. So one could say, when faced with a challenge of explaining this, this is purely a coincidence that there are two chains of causation intersecting at a particular time and place. Um, yet for the Zande, uh, as for all of us, the question remains, why me? Right? Why me? Why at this particular time? Um, the question, the psychological question, is not simply a question of how did it happen, right? but also of why. And one of the things that, that science is not especially great at is answering the why me question, which happens to be a question that humans very much want an answer to. Right? Science is much better at the how part, um, at least to the extent that we have access to, uh, to the information. So what I'm really trying to figure out here is the psychological process by which we integrate how and why explanations for the same events. Right. So access to natural as, where, as well as supernatural explanations is, of course, not confined to the Azande. It's a pervasive experience across different cultures. And so integrating multiple explanatory frameworks. Now, these might be natural and supernatural. They could be lay versus scientific explanations. Right? The general psychological effect, I think, holds. And reconciling diverse belief systems is a general cognitive problem. Right? The reality is. We, have, we are bombarded, we are overwhelmed with different explanatory frameworks for explaining the world around us in many cases, especially cases that involve what I call uh, existentially arousing events, things like questions about our origins and the origins of life, serious illness, death, things like that. Right, so in fact, we are, um, we are spoiled for choice in the different ways that we can try to understand and explain these things. And on the one hand, no society fully um, excludes or has rejected supernatural beliefs, as, as Bob's talked about. I think supernatural beliefs are um, fundamentally psychologically natural um, in ways that, in fact, scientific beliefs are, are not. I think we have this impression that we learn about science in a very first-person, direct way through active exploration. Um, that we, you know, we have scientific truths that we can verify, but that's really only true at a, at a very, very basic level. For any complex scientific information, we learn it exactly the same way we learn religious information. Someone else who knows more than we do told us it was true, right? Through testimony, right? That's how we learn about, uh, about most things. And in both Western educated industrialized communities as well as traditional indigenous communities, Natural and supernatural explanations are pervasive. So, scientific and religious worldviews are, they could be viewed as competitive ways of knowing. Um, if you've spent any time following the popular media in this country, I live in Texas currently, so this is a, um, this is kind of a constant source of political tension where science and religion are viewed as competitive ways of knowing, where uh, science and religion in a battle for truth, right, for the soul of humanity. Um, which actually, that was a quote from Richard Dawkins, and I thought it was very strange he said soul of humanity, given his perspective, but um, <laughs> this view is, is also implied by the secularization hypothesis, right, so that um, with, uh, with the advances in science and technology, uh, these, the ideas that these are, are gradually going to replace religious explanations. So that's one possibility. 
they might be um, complementary or coexisting, but really distinct epistemological stances. So this would be in, in contrast to more of the displacement view. Right? So this would be another possibility where you have, um, you have some domains of, of experience that science is used to explain and others that religion is used to explain. Or you could have synthetic or blended models. And what I'm gonna do is provide some experimental evidence for the, um, the widespread existence of integrated natural and supernatural explanatory models that fit much more along this third, uh, third option. Now, of course, these are not necessarily mutually exclusive and might depend to some extent on the domain, but the larger point here is the idea that scientific and religious explanations are psychologically compatible is entirely inaccurate. It just simply is. And the truth is, I think this is a function of our cognitive flexibility, uh, for better or for worse. We are very capable of um, suspending all manner of unintegrated, disparate, uh, incomplete, partial, inconsistent truths in our brain. It's not just true of science and religion, that's true of a lot of things. Right? Psychologists are very familiar with this. So the assumption that natural and supernatural explanations, as I mentioned, it's not psychologically accurate, right? I'm not making a philosophical claim here. I'm making a psychological claim. And individuals use both natural and supernatural explanations to interpret the same events. So what's crucial here is I'm not making a, um, which would of course be an incredibly trivial claim that turns out individuals use scientific and religious explanations. I think that's pretty darn well known. The, the novelty here is psychologically modeling how people use both, how they integrate them in predictable and universal ways to explain the very same events, right? That's what the goal here is. And um, what I wanna talk to you about is how both kinds of explanations coexist in individual minds in multiple ways. Now, keep in mind, what I'm trying to specify here is the psychological process. Do scientific and religious explanations provide a great case study for this? Absolutely. Is this the only, or these the only domains in which you would find this, as I mentioned before? Absolutely not. Um, and I actually have a review paper that I published recently that um, provides an overview of cross-cultural evidence of explanatory coexistence. So I'm, uh, as a developmental psychologist, I'm also really interested in developmental perspectives and how religious and, and scientific cognition develop. Because in fact, I think they have quite, quite a lot in common. And as, as I presumably all of you know, much about the process of science education is enormously, or, or learning scientific concepts, is enormously unnatural in the sense that it requires extensive, and I'm talking about formal scientific reasoning here, as opposed to more intuitive um, scientific concepts. It's enormously effortful. It requires um, an enormous amount of education for many years. Uh, even the best of us, even professional scientists, are not that great at it, quite frankly. Right? We're not great at designing experiments that will disconfirm our hypothesis. Confirmation bias is very, very widely documented. So a lot of the cognitive biases that make understanding the world around us um, efficient also interfere with our understanding of scientific concepts, where religion has, um, is uh, plagued with a bit less of that. Now, so 
the, the, one of the reasons that I've gotten interested in studying the, um, the domains that I'm interested in studying, wow, the existentially arousing domains, illness, origins, and death, is because they have a number of properties that make it especially likely that people are going to, to bring both religious and scientific explanations or natural and supernatural explanations to the, ta to the explanatory task. So for example, uh, in all, of the, all three of these domains, there are unobservable causes, right? So there's a lot about um, all three of those domains that there are unspecified underlying mechanisms, right? So for, I'll just, one example would be for many serious illnesses, we don't know, we don't have cures for them, right? This would, this would be why um, studying AIDS was especially appropriate, right? Where the disease of AIDS is shrouded in secrecy, there's no cure, there's this um, extended incubation period, you could engage in a risky sexual behavior, contract a virus, and then, um, that which you wouldn't know about, and have absolutely no symptoms for years, right? This is, you know, lots of unobservable causes there. Um, there are also, all of these domains are associated with strong emotions, right? So you want to study explanatory coexistence, you need to make sure people are motivated to bring both kinds of explanations to bear. And there's no reason they necessarily would. So in the, the research that I did on witchcraft, when I asked people about a common cold, and I asked them why people would have contracted that, no one mentions witchcraft, right? You don't need to go to a... Um, uh, divine punishment or some kind of supernatural agent for a trivial illness that uh, is just transitory, right? You need, you want to, to, to marshal the supernatural agent, um, you know, he's, he or she's busy, has other things to do. It's probably not involved in, in um, trivial illnesses. Uh, so you need to go to serious illnesses for um, a study of both of these kinds of explanatory frameworks. And um, there, in all of these domains, these, these general human problems and human issues are, uh, they predated our scientific understanding, right? So illness and questions about our origins and death have, um, have been of interest to humans for obvious reasons long before we had absolutely any formal scientific insight about what caused them. So all this is to say there's a, um, these particular domains are very useful for studying explanatory coexistence. So, a couple things that I want to mention before I get into the, uh, the minutiae of the experimental work. Supernatural explanations, in fact, do not always appear early in development. This is relevant for the research in developmental psychology, which was um, heavily influenced by Piaget, which I'm sure uh, many of you have heard about. And what Piaget, Piaget actually was very, um, he was a kind of early secularization um, theorist in some ways. Uh, and his assumption was children start out with supernatural concepts that are irrational and primitive and that as children understand more about how the world works, they jettison those, those primitive beliefs become more scientific and rational and thus you would expect supernatural beliefs to decline with age. Right? But in fact, there's a lot of evidence now that supernatural explanations actually increase with, with age for reasons I'm sure many of you can guess. Um, supernatural explanations are not primitive or immature ways of thinking that are suppressed over the course of the development. I think that very much mischaracterizes what supernatural explanations are about 
I think a lot of, in fact, I think a lot of this, uh, the early literature on religious cognition was, for the same reason, study of ritual has been completely neglected by psychology, is that religious concepts as ritualistic concepts uh, were considered irrational, um, unreasonable, things that people did, and really not worth our time to try to understand. Right? It's kind of like an embarrassing part of, um, of human culture, like all these religious and ritualistic things, when in fact I think that's pretty core to what makes us unique as a species. So a lot of the scientists at the time were um, uh, heavily influenced, their personal beliefs heavily influenced the assumptions they made about uh, human nature. Uh, and finally, I think supernatural explanations are products of an evolved cognitive architecture and reflect intuitive cognitive biases, right? There's an elegant um, and influential literature in the cognitive science of religion uh, and also cultural evolution that demonstrates this um, with uh, a lot of evidence. And they're constructed through socialization and cultural learning. So I think there's a lot about um, religious cognition that is heavily prepared from a cognitive perspective. Um, I mean, by prepared, I don't think religious beliefs in particular are prepared for, but that they, um, there's a byproduct explanation for this, and that of course the specific be uh, cultural beliefs of a community are going to influence how these, these particular beliefs come online. And um, <clears throat> right, just to give you a sense of where we're going to go next, in this theory paper I've talked about universal ways that uh, both children and adults integrate natural and supernatural explanations in these three domains. Anyone recognize what this is? How many of you have been to the Creationist Museum? <laughs> As a psychologist, this is, or anthropologist, there's nothing more fascinating. Right? So this is a, an incredibly interesting case of uh, putting cognitive effort into reconciling mm -hmm. inconsistent information, right? So for a biblical literalist, if the world is 4,000 years old, how in the world do you explain, I mean, the dinosaurs are really irritating. Like, <laughs> what are we doing with all these dinosaur bones, right? Um, so some people think dinosaur bones is actually a conspiracy. Um, but a lot of, most people recognize that they do actually exist. So how do you deal with that? How can the world possibly be 4,000 years old and you've got these, these, this record of these ancient bones that predated the human species? Right? What are your options there? What do you do with that? You could not do that, deal with that. <laughs> you could say, I'm not, and humans do that all the time. Like, yep, I don't want to deal with that. These are my beliefs and there's these other things and I haven't integrated them, but so what? Time for scotch. You could do that, really, and a lot of people do. But what else could you do in that situation? Because that's kind of a problem. What else do you do? Right? So what? What? So great. What's your story then? What story that they were just around? You know what I mean? That that they're not that old. Sure. Right. So you could question the validity of the evidence that the bones are indeed um, far older than um, you know. Redate time. Right. They're placed here to test our faith. Oh, yeah. there we go. That's creative. Right. Yeah. So I mean, this is, when people talk about how kind of irrational this process is, I think in fact it's 
the creativity people marshal to integrate these kinds of explanations, I think it's, it's really fascinating. Well, I'll tell you how, how they do it at the Creationist Museum. So, to explain how um, dinosaur, you have these dinosaur bones and the, you know, we're expecting the world to be 4,000 years old, uh, what you need to do is, um, is postulate how humans and dinosaurs lived at the same time. So you don't revise the age of the Earth. It's 4,000 years old, we've already covered that, right? So that's, you can't, that's, not, that's inflexible, right? So to deal with this, you either question whether dinosaurs lived, or, or, or the, sorry, there's real evidence for it, um, or you have to explain how humans and dinosaurs could have lived at the same time, which is what they think happened. Thus, the saddle on the Tyrannosaur, or sorry, the Triceratops. They also have um, these animatronic Tyrannosaurus Rex with saddles for human children to ride on. Which, why a dinosaur would have, I don't know. Oh, another key feature. Apparently, prior to the fall of man, dinosaurs were vegetarian. That's why the Tyrannosaurus Rex could have the human child on the back. I'm sure you're all glad you know that now. Right? That's how it worked. Right, so this is one example of explanatory coexistence there, integration. Um, I'm going to talk most about my empirical work on um, reasoning about AIDS, but we've also studied this in the domain of death, where you are, on one hand, faced with the biological finality of death, but also invited to entertain the possibility of an afterlife, which is a universal, um, universally available experience. So, these involve unobservable causes, strong emotions predate scientific understanding, and what I want to know is how they negotiate multiple kinds of explanations. This here is the American undergraduate version of explanatory coexistence. You seen this t-shirt? Maxwell's equations. So this is what I would call a, um, an example of <coughs> proximate and distal reasoning, where the proximate explanation for um, the origin of light, or whatever the case is, is natural, but the supernatural explanation is God. I mean, it's really hard to argue with that. You can't disprove that. Right? You push, you basically just push God farther and farther and farther back. Theistic evolution is a, is a great example of that. So I want to talk to you about a couple of the ways that I think, a couple of models for explanatory coexistence. And the first is what I call target-dependent thinking. So these are explanations that remain um, alternative views of the world. They're recruited to explain distinct aspects of a phenomenon depending on the target or context. So they give you a few anecdotes from different domains. So for origins, this is one of the studies that we reviewed. Um, Margaret Evans is at the, uh, she's at the University of Michigan and has done really, really uh, pioneering work on how people integrate uh, evolutionary and creationist explanations, and working in the American Midwest is a perfect place to do this. So she's done a lot of interviews with um, both parents and children, including people that come into the Natural History Museum in Ann Arbor. And uh, what you have here is a participant who says, man is created with a soul which makes him different from an animal. That can be found in the book of Genesis. Right? So the idea that, um, to try to explain the creationist and evolutionary accounts. One possibility is, well, um, and in some ways the, the Catholic Church has done something a little bit similar to this. The idea is that evolution at a micro level 
is fine, but that evolution doesn't apply to humans because humans are special. And it turns out we think we're really special from, and different from other animals. Just convenient, right? Illness, witchcraft can cause a disease that looks like AIDS. So this is actually the most interesting um, insight from um, one of my experiences with field work is, and I would ask people a lot about how, um, how they reconcile the fact that the Western biomedical industry in South Africa is deeply motivated to try to dispel the idea that witchcraft causes AIDS for lots of public health reasons. Um, although in that context, I mean, witchcraft is, is used to explain AIDS, but witchcraft is used to explain all kinds of bad stuff. Right? AIDS is really just the most recent bad thing on the block. It's used to explain tuberculosis, unemployment, all kinds of nasty and negative things. Right? So to explain the, um, you know, this information that witchcraft doesn't cause AIDS, one of the ways this has been reconciled with the, this explanatory framework is that there are two AIDS, two different kinds of AIDS, and they have distinct causal <coughs> bases. So there's a biomedical AIDS that the Western doctors know about, although obviously they're not that great because they've been studying this for years and they still can't even cure it. Right? So there's the witchcraft, uh, so there's the biomedical AIDS. That's, that's the AIDS where there's the virus and the HIV and all of that. Um, and then there's a witchcraft AIDS. And see, witches are much more talented than doctors because they can do a lot more. And they are, um, they're capable of doing absolutely anything. And they can fool Western doctors. So they've, in fact, they can create a disease that looks like AIDS, that acts like AIDS, that anyone else would think was AIDS. But that if you talk to a diviner, he would know the difference, right? So the, uh, the psychological advantage of having a witchcraft AIDS, why would, you, why would you come up with that? What would be the motivation to, um, to generate an explanation that there's a witchcraft AIDS which is different from the biomedical AIDS? You can cure people, people of one of those more easily than the other. Absolutely, right. So they're told all the people are told all the time, AIDS kills, there's no cure. Um, I mean, imagine the psychological experience of a, a young person, and AIDS is especially horrifying because it kills young people, right? People in the prime of their life, people who shouldn't be dying. They, um, they go into a, a Western hospital and say, um, Pretoria, stand in line for five or six hours, finally speak to a physician who is probably told, I mean, imagine the experience of telling 150 people a day that they have a disease where there's no, a young person, 150 young people, that they have a, a, a chronic disease that will result in their, um, in their death, and that there are treatments, but you don't have the resources to give them to them, right? So if you're in that situation as a young person, imagine the psychological devastation. You're given no agency, you're given no hope. But if this AIDS that you have isn't, in fact, the biomedical AIDS, that nasty one with no cure, if, in fact, it's caused by a witch and a curse, you can go to a diviner, you can go to a traditional healer, get the curse <clears throat> lifted, and you're cured. Additionally, AIDS, as many of you know, is a sexually, largely sexually transmitted disease. Turns out there's a lot of stigma associated with that. 
in a, in a, a um, conservative country where, of course, people have sex before they get married, but you're not officially supposed to do that, much like the American South. And um, so there's not a lot of, um, there aren't very many options when you contract a sexually transmitted disease in terms of social stigma. But if you are cursed, obviously, you're not responsible in the same way. So um, another example from the domain of death, because if she is with God, I guess she could see and hear her soul is alive even if her body is buried. So the idea to, to accommodate both scientific and religious explanations for death, you, you split, you've got this mind-body dualism, right, where the body dies but the mind lives on. So let's talk next about what I call synthetic thinking. And this is when two different explanations are combined into a single explanation but without explicit integration. So you'll see what I mean here. So to explain how creationist, creationism and evolution could both provide explanations for origins, we have a participant that says, well again, evolution with the environment, but I'm also a religious person, so that's a difficult question. I think a bit of both, perhaps. Like, oh, all of the above. Everything is good. Or in the case of illness, it might be witchcraft, also having unprotected sex. That could be involved too. <coughs> Even if she doesn't use her heart up in heaven, there's something special that makes the rest of your body work. It's like magic. Okay. These are all examples of synthetic thinking. Integrative thinking, I think, is the most integrated, not surprisingly, which is why I call it that. You've got two different explanations that are um, where people put some cognitive effort into integrating them. So here we have, for origins, humans got here from gorillas and monkeys. Yikes. Science education in Texas is not that good. Because <laughs> they're intelligent creatures if you really look at them, which is true. The first monkeys probably evolved from something else or got put here as an individual. God could have put the first monkeys here. So there is a, um, I mean, there's a lot that's psychologically fascinating about that and a bit worrisome. Uh, but what you see here is they're trying to reconcile a bit of, you know, their, their limited knowledge of the process of evolution with um, a, uh, a divine creator who supposedly created the entire earth. For illness, a witch can put you in the way of viruses and germs, right? This is very psychologically sophisticated. Because there's a lot, as I was mentioning, there's a lot about AIDS which is incredibly peculiar. Right. You can engage in exactly the same behavior as other people, and yet you become affected or not, and they do. Right. So you could engage in unprotected sex and never get AIDS. You can engage in unprotected sex once and get AIDS. And what they're um, in these kinds of explanations, what they're pointing out is, you know, why me? Right. They're they're perfectly willing to acknowledge that the HIV virus is involved in the transmission, but what they're pointing out here is what. What could have possibly compelled me to sleep with that particular man or woman at that particular time? Right? That must have been a witch. And in case of death, if she's in heaven, she'll be with other people. She will communicate with them. It's as if you were brought back to life because God brings you back to life to be with him. So there's God involved in the, um, in the process of the, the afterlife and can suspend violations of natural phenomena. So, I'm going to give you a little more information about illness understanding in particular. Perfect place to study explanatory coexistence, to study um, beliefs about witchcraft, to study beliefs about karma. 
because people are deeply interested. I mean, illness is one of the most terrible things to happen to humans, uh, probably second only to, to death. And we're very interested in understanding the why me question. It's a great place to study religious explanations or supernatural explanations. So we want to investigate coexistence um, in domains where people bring different explanations to bear, but also in cultural settings where these belief systems are juxtaposed. Uh, we know illness is not always interpreted exclusively in biological terms. Instead, you have a, an amalgamation of biological, social, and supernatural explanations that are used to explain uh, illness transmission. And for, I think, a, a large portion of the history of, of this and related literatures, the assumption was that the, um, the supernatural explanations were, were explanations that uneducated people would use, that highly educated people that had detailed un un information and understanding of the biological process of illness wouldn't need to appeal to supernatural explanations. Right? So there are these really um, incredibly compelling studies of female oncologists who are experts in breast cancer. And these women, uh, as highly educated as you could possibly be on this particular topic, uh, all MD PhDs, and they were, their expertise was in breast cancer in particular. And they followed this, this group of, of women over time, and some portion of these women over time <coughs> contracted breast cancer themselves. And so they interviewed, this wasn't a study about explanatory coexistence in particular, but it, it, but it speaks to it. They interviewed these women about why they think they got <coughs> breast cancer. And of course, these are people who could give you, these are women who give you a detailed mechanistic account of breast cancer, and they could all do that. But a very large portion of the sample appealed to um, what I would call supernatural explanations. Um, maybe life is trying to, rep trying to teach me something. Right, so replace life with God. Life? What's life? That's, in many ways, that's a supernatural explanation. Or I wonder what I could have done to bring this upon myself. Just kind of a proto-witchcraft type of explanation. Or, or maybe a proto-karmic explanation of some, of some kind. So the experience of trying to understand personal misfortune is a, an incredibly powerful trigger for a supernatural explanation. So this is, uh, this is actually a passage from a book by um, Tracy Kidder about the life of Paul Farmer, Mountains Beyond Mountains. Have any of you read this? Mm -hmm. I couldn't recommend it more highly. I'm a big fan of Paul, Paul Farmer, who's a, um, who's a physician and medical anthropologist at Harvard and has studied tuberculosis and AIDS in Haiti. Um, and there's this fantastic book that was written about his life. And this is a passage from the book, which is describing a conversation between Paul Farmer, who was in Haiti doing field work, and an elderly Haitian woman. And when he first interviewed her, her, she's this um, older Haitian woman, she'd taken mild offense at his questions about sorcery. She'd been one of the few to deny that she believed it. She stated, I'm not stupid. I know tuberculosis comes from people coughing germs. She'd taken all her medicines. She'd been cured. But now, a year later, when he asked her again about sorcery, she said that, of course, she believed in it. I know who sent me my sickness, and I'm going to get her back. Her. Um, what do they call it? Um, intersexual competition or conflict. But if you believe that, he cried, why did you take your medicines? Right? If you think this is sorcery related, why did you take your medicines? So in free translations, she said to him, honey, 
Are you incapable of complexity? There's <laughs> <laughs> something so right about that. Right? So we covered the minutia of the mechanisms of tuberculosis. Of course, I took your medicine. I understand that. But you cannot explain why the hell I got those. I was exposed to those germs. I got that disease in the first place. And a lot of the scientific explanations for that are, let's just say, not very psychologically satisfying. So let's talk about AIDS a little bit. Um, the reason, again, that I, um, I got interested in this is from a very applied health education perspective. And the, um, the reason I chose to study AIDS is that it's perhaps one of the most existentially arousing illnesses of all. And I've talked a little bit about why that is. It's very, it's highly amenable to both biological and supernatural explanations. Um, it's highly secretive. Right? It's a sexually transmitted disease, so there's a lot of shame associated with it. It's cloaked in, in shame. It's poorly understood by, um, relatively speaking, by Western biomedicine, although we're making some progress on that front. Um, exactly the same behavior, sexual behavior in this case, results in, uh, in different outcomes. Uh, I will say, just as a bit of background, for those of you who are unfamiliar with um, the the details of the AIDS epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa. This is a disease that has, in this context, very much infiltrated the heterosexual population. So AIDS in this context is, is not a disease of, of IV drug users, right? There aren't people, there aren't enough people who have money for things like that. Um, or even a, a disease that plagues the homosexual population. Right? So the population that I'm working with in South Africa uh, they, the, the recent uh, survey, which was done, I think, last year, showed that 42% of pregnant women in the clinics near um, the community I work in are HIV positive, 42%. So to overstate the tragic impact this disease has had in these communities, it would be impossible. People are desperate to try to explain the personal um, and biological experience of this disease, and that's why I studied it there. Although when I submitted this work initially for review, the, uh, it was to a cognitive psychology journal, one of the reviewers had said, um, yeah, this is all well and well and good, but why wouldn't you just study this in the US? Why, why would you need to go to South Africa? Why would I study AIDS in a context that is infected by it in the same way? I mean, these are the, the, the existentially arousing aspect of it doesn't afflict the American population in the same way. But I, I found that he, this reviewer is also concerned about whether South African, South African population could be representative of human cognition, yet 99% of our research is with American undergraduates and we have no problem assuming that's representative. It's absolutely astounding. So in 2009, just to give you a comparison point to that you know, 42%, 29.4% of pregnant women in South Africa were HIV positive. Um, there are multiple explanations to explain this. You've got biomedical services, you've got traditional medicine, you've got faith healing. Here's a picture of um, some of the weight in one of the hospitals that, um, that I've done work in. Right, so these, the medical infrastructure in South Africa is utterly overburdened by the, um, the AIDS epidemic. And you hardly get the kind of human care that you would hope people would get when they're diagnosed with an incurable and terrible disease. Uh, there are also, um, there are actually 10 times as many traditional healers, pro probably more like 15, 
uh, 15 times more traditional healers in South Africa than medical doctors. And so the vast um, majority of the population seeks out traditional healers. Who, who, by the way, are incredibly useful for lots of things, right? They have deep knowledge, um, you know, they're herbalists, as Tom, you would be very familiar with. And um, they, they treat a variety of different sorts of problems. There's been a huge controversy about traditional healers in this context because many advertise cures for AIDS, which the Western biomedical industry is completely horrified by. How could you... Um, how could you advertise a, a cure for a disease when no cure is available? But in fact, these traditional healers, and this is some other work that I've done, they're not thinking about AIDS in terms of viral load or viruses. They are thinking about AIDS in terms of the outward manifestations of it. Right? And AIDS is sort of a, um, or HIV, the experience of that is kind of like a roller coaster, where you don't, of course, you don't die of AIDS itself. You die of the opportunistic infections that plague your immune system. So your immune system is compromised, you get an opportunistic infection, you recover, you get another one, you recover, eventually you don't recover. But there is recovery over the period, over the course of the disease. So from a traditional healer's perspective, if they cure you from one of these, out, you know, these opportunistic infections, they've cured you, right? So there's not, I mean, there are some charlatans in this group. But the majority are attempting to provide people with care in a, in a population that really lacks those resources. And of course, you have Christian explanations for, for this. Um, and in fact, one of the other projects that I'm working on is looking at how people reckon, people who are, um, who are from, uh, at least originally, more animist, traditional um, uh, religious groups or religious belief systems that have been more recently converted to Christianity, these, uh, a lot of the Christian beliefs about God testing you or um, God trying to um, test your, your faith and your allegiance to him and the idea that God would punish you yet some, or allow terrible things to happen to you yet also be this all-powerful, all-knowing being. They've, I mean, this population's find pretty baffling. This population that have been converted longer have maybe made peace with that, in my mind, huge contradiction. So witchcraft are practices of persons with malicious intent to cause harm through the use of um, substances and invisible supernatural forces. I'm looking at how adults and children reconcile them. So there are a couple of different possibilities that map onto those different coexistence accounts I talked about before. Biological knowledge could supplant supernatural explanations. So people could only, perhaps the only reason people would make witchcraft attribution would be um, because they don't have a biological explanation for it. They could remain distinct alternative views of the world, or they could be used jointly to explain the same phenomena. Uh, in terms of the development, you could get greater accuracy with age, which would be more biomedical explanations and fewer supernatural explanations. You could get just the opposite, right? given all this evidence that supernatural explanations increase, or you could get the synthesis of greater scientific accuracy with age and experience and education, uh, as well as enculturation. Because these supernatural explanations are widely endorsed in these communities. So do these coexist to interpret illness? Uh, this is a, a, quite a broad age range here. We've got five to 15 year olds, as well as adults. This is uh, conducted in a peri-urban community in, um, in the Hauteng province of South Africa, in Sesotho. We also had a rural, um, comparison group. These are from the same um, ethnic and linguistic group as the peri-urban sample. 
So there's the Sutu speakers. And they live in a rural settlement in the former Bantustan of Kwakwa in the Free State Province. So here's my causal explanation task. And keep in mind, we're trying to do this across ages. So we're doing this with young kids, that's the kind of more simplistic um, vignette. So you have a person named Lorado, she's not feeling well, she's been feeling sick for a few days, her body aches, she's got a runny nose, she doesn't feel like eating, she feels tired all the time, she has AIDS, why do you think she got AIDS? Um, we also did these vignettes with, um, uh, with colds as well. So we did these with both AIDS and colds, but I'll show you the AIDS data. So we provided children and adults with these vignettes, and then we gave them a series of explanations that they could either endorse or reject. They could reject all of them, they could endorse all of them, or reject some and endorse others. So we had a biological blood explanation. She went to an Anyanga traditional healer who used a razor with someone else's sick blood in it to make cuts in her hand. Could that be why she got AIDS? A contagion one, which of course is biologically inaccurate. She played with another girl that was sick. Some non-biological explanations, a moral explanation. She lied to her mother, kind of this imminent justice idea. Bewitchment, she was bewitched by a neighbor who is envious of her. So these are the explanations. We also had a, um, an additional non-explanatory option or unrelated option to make sure kids weren't just saying yes or no to absolutely everything. So here's what the data look like. These are summary scores across four vignettes. So what you see here, got five-year-olds to adults, is that they endorse, these are biological explanations, the blood explanations with very high level, at very high levels. So you've got even very young children understand that blood is a vector for contracting AIDS, and that biological contagion is much less of a, a risk factor, and that's in terms of coughing and sneezing. So pretty sophisticated biological knowledge. What you see here is very little evidence that there's a lack of understanding of what causes AIDS. Uh, I actually was um, planning to put a, um, an explanation that had to do with sexual transmission, which is the vast majority of the, you know, the means of, of HIV transmission in that context, but the IRB at the University of Michigan, um, anything that even insinuates sexual contact, you, um, you really, they won't give you permission to ask children about, including populations that are already sexually active. But I got at that in another way. Um, Non-biological explanations, for moral explanations, these, are, these occur at very, very low levels. Similar studies that have been done in the US, not using this paradigm, but found that moral explanations for illness are much higher. Moral explanations of this kind are much higher, probably the, the Judeo-Christian influence there. Um, witchcraft explanations are, I mean, occur to some extent, are lowest among the adolescents. I mean, this could potentially be a schooling effect, and are highest among the adults. It's kind of interesting, but when I saw these data, I thought, given how much rhetoric there is about witchcraft in this community, these are pretty low levels of endorsement, right? So I thought maybe, you know, maybe I'm not providing people with enough contextual information to make witchcraft attributions. So this is what led to the next study. But this first study, we've got some evidence that biological knowledge does not predict um, witchcraft endorsement. So it wasn't that people without the biological knowledge were endorsing witchcraft more, or vice versa. We have this increase in biological with, uh, in knowledge with age, but it didn't correspond to a decrease in witchcraft endorsement. So it looks like understanding the biological nature of disease is independent of witchcraft endorsement, right? This is not an ignorance model. 
Definitely not consistent with the idea of a replacement hypothesis. So we found that the biological explanations were endorsed most frequently, but we, you know, we have some evidence for witchcraft endorsement, especially among adults. Over half of the child and adolescent population um, and all of the adult participants endorsed at least one witchcraft attribution or explanation. And we get this U-shaped developmental pattern. What I wanted to look at is, is this an issue of limited <coughs> contextual information? So deciding an, um, an, some kind of outcome or event is caused by witchcraft requires a lot of social information about the person, right? These are deeply contextually embedded belief systems, and maybe they just need more information. So um, attributing an unfortunate event to witchcraft is contextually bound. So what I want to do is investigate how the kind of contextual information provided influences whether people give biological or witchcraft explanations, and how this provides information about the coexistence of natural and supernatural explanations. So let's look at the um, overall experimental design first. These, um, this study was done with an older, slightly older population, so 15 through 75. Here is the, this is the kind of information we use to prime witchcraft, and the anthropologists in the room who, who study witchcraft are probably very familiar with this sort of information. So one of the things that puts you very much at risk for witchcraft attack is being a target of envy. Right? So we have Klotsky, um, Klokotsky and his family, they have jobs in a nice house. Um, he would buy himself new clothes and furniture. These are deeply, deeply impoverished communities, very low levels of material wealth, so anyone who has, who has a job, it's a 70% unemployment rate. So anyone who has a job in this context is, has it good, has it really, really good. And if they have money to buy material resources, they're considered very, very um, wealthy indeed. Uh, also lack of generosity. Um, so things like when um, his neighbor needed money for school fees, for his children, he did not help him. Now most Americans would consider it kind of strange to be morally obligated to provide for your neighbor's children. But in, in South Africa, that would be considered completely appropriate. If you had the money, that would be appropriate. These are communities that rely heavily on reciprocity from kin and from people in their social groups. So here's the, the way we did this. We had four different conditions where we included both biological and witchcraft information. Um, only witchcraft, um, only biological information, or, or neither. Note, I never used witchcraft language explicitly. It was always lack of generosity, target of envy, and for the, when I say biological information, I never used any language referring to unprotected sex in particular. I just said things like, Tlokotsi likes to hang out in the Sheban or the bar. He's a big fan of women. He likes to spend time with women. And people read between the lines. <laughs> All right. So for the both, um, the, the, the condition where both biological and witchcraft information are provided, now keep in mind, this study is different from the first one because these are, this is an open-ended vignette. So I decoded the kinds of explanations they generated. Um, and we see when you provide both, people provide more, sorry, because I don't have that. These are the, sorry, these are the biological explanations and these are the witchcraft explanations. So you, you put both in there, they default to the biological. You put neither in there, they still default to the biological. You put only the biological, you're like, yeah, he had unprotected sex with lots of women, obviously, right? There's no question. Now, you only provide information about um, envy, lack of generosity. You actually need more witchcraft um, uh, explanations than biological one. 
biological explanations, which is consistent with my idea that this is a context effect. So just to give you a quick glimpse at the kinds of explanations they provided for target-dependent thinking, AIDS is caused by viruses, muti, which is witchcraft, is caused by witches. There's the witchcraft AIDS and the biomedical AIDS. Synthetic thinking, muti, which is mixed with evil spirits and having a protected sex. So a little bit. For integrative thinking, witchcraft can fool you into sleeping with an HIV-infected person. A witch can make a condom weak and break. Sophisticated stuff. How do you disprove that? Right? A witch can make a condom weak and break. Extraordinary. Um, sorry. So just to wrap up, both kinds of explanations are widely endorsed. Um, participants both endorse both biological and witchcraft explanations and provide them, again, for the very same cases of illness. Uh, biological knowledge is independent of witchcraft endorsement, and we have evidence for how individuals accommodate natural and supernatural belief systems. Again, they often increase rather than decrease with age. When I published this work, there was a, a large amount of press in the popular media, and I put these images up here because this is how the media represents my work, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Uh, this is what the, the popular media thinks of when they, they hear the word supernatural. Uh, this is, so there are predictable and universal ways in which explanations coexist in individual minds to interpret the same events. Um, there's an astounding amount of evidence that reasoning about supernatural phenomena is an integral and enduring aspect of human cognition um, for lots of different reasons that we've already touched on in this workshop so far. And if you have questions or some time for questions, I'd be happy to... The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.